Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. With a raging El Nino in effect, the Eastern Pacific hurricane season was bound to be above average. However, the number of storms that have impacted land has been surprising. From October 9th to October 25th, Western Mexico has been hit by four consecutive tropical cyclones. Three were hurricanes at landfall, and the one we're going to focus on today is Hurricane Otis. First thought to make landfall as either a strong tropical storm or a weak hurricane, it ended up becoming the strongest landfalling hurricane in the Eastern Pacific in under 24 hours. How did this happen? And what can we as an industry learn about the storm to help improve forecasting and communications in the future? That is today's Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno here with Dr. Greg Postel, and we want to dive right into this. Greg, you know, this is something that truly hit all of us pretty hard when we saw how fast Otis started its rapid intensification. Yeah, I remember, you know, starting to get the signals from various social media outlets that I follow from the Hurricane Center, for example, that things were starting to evolve very differently Mm -hmm. than what we even expected, let's say, in the early morning hours. So by midday, six to 12 hours prior to landfall, we started to see the signs that this was taking a turn in an unexpected way, which is one of the key Mm -hmm. things about this. This took all of us by surprise. Yeah, I mean, we we all looked at it. And certainly no one closer than the National Hurricane Center was watching it very closely. But we we looked at it personally on our show in the morning and we thought, yeah, maybe a you know strong tropical storm, possible hurricane, and really didn't see much more than that. So and today, maybe, maybe not even directly impact Acapulco. No, no, no. Because the track, track changed too. The track changed too. Yep. And so we want to delve into that in today's podcast. This is something that has a lot of meteorologists talking, certainly after the fact. Our hearts are with the people of Mexico and Acapulco, and we're seeing images um come out of there that are just absolutely devastating. I mean, this is a cat five. And it is a huge international story that we're going to be following for a long time yet to come because we know that so many people have been cut off from, you know, resources that they need to survive. And it's going to be one of those things that um, unfortunately it's not going to take weeks or months to recover from it, mm-hmm. you know, could take a lifetime. I think the discovery is going to continue to take weeks though, to really yes. know exactly what happened. Um, so let's go backwards and just delve into this hurricane season in particular in the Eastern Pacific. Mm-hmm. I remember us talking about how slow of a start it got. It was the end of <laughs> June before we even saw our first name system out here. And it's been so active in the East Pacific. Yeah. I mean, it really has been, I mean, we've had eight, major hurricanes uh, this season, and that is one shy of the record. Uh, We're not done yet, maybe. Hopefully we are, but we might not be. We might not be. And this has been one of those seasons for the record books in the East Pacific. And I think going into it, I think the bigger picture, given a lot of the larger scale things that we look at when we look at hurricane seasons in advance, were there. The table was kind of set in an El Nino kind of way mm-hmm. for lots of tropical cyclone activity there. And it certainly took a little while to get there, but it's now off to the races. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. So um, we had just recently, though, I talked about the the four storms. We had Lydia, Norma, Otis in short order here. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting about Otis is it formed in between the two landfalls of of Norma, which we, we had been paying a lot of attention to. So Otis kind of snuck in there. Right. Uh, we were, I was distracted mm-hmm. by uh, Norma. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, it's one of those things where you... You know, you don't expect uh, one after the other in that mm-hmm. kind of fashion, but we got it rapid fire and boy, did we get it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's really dive right into what happened that day. We were watching um, Otis. It didn't look terribly organized. And then all of a sudden it did. And so one thing that we keep pointing back to is the satellite presentation of it and how it quickly got that look. But it, it took a while from the satellite perspective it, for it to catch up with the intensity within. The Hurricane Hunters really found it first. I remember seeing, that's right, the um, some of the data coming back from the Hurricane Hunters and their reconnaissance, all of a sudden, unexpectedly saying, whoa, we're onto something here. We are you know, detecting something that's a lot more intense than we thought we were mm-hmm. going to fly into. And um, that's a sign that you know when hurricanes become Cat 5s, it all happens really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, they undergo this this period where so much happens in such a short amount of time. This was one of those cases that uh, happened, obviously, on a time scale faster than we've ever seen it practically. It's very high among the list of most in rapidly intensifying systems. And it was one of those cases where everything had lined up um, literally and figuratively in a way to support such an explosive development. But they were very subtle features that lined up. So it wasn't obvious. Obviously, it wasn't obvious to forecasters. It wasn't obvious to the models at all. The weather models didn't see any of this coming. We have a graph to show about that. Yeah, you know, you know we've been looking at this. Yeah. Which goes back to, let's say, it made landfall what very early Wednesday morning mm-hmm. local time. And going back a little more than 24 hours prior, let's say late Monday night. Mm-hmm. So this is really... I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, for anyone watching on on YouTube or on the streaming app, um, you can see what we're talking about is that what happened in green is far surpassing anything in the forecast. So even, you know, a day in advance of day before landfall, the models, and we only showed you a few of them, but I can't think of any model that came anywhere close to capturing or verifying. They were all saying the same thing. You know, the hurricane models, global models, you name it, they were forecasting, as you said, tropical storm, maybe lower end hurricane, nothing of the sort that we ended up getting. So, you know, we ask ourselves, what what did they miss? And mm-hmm. it's from our vantage point right here, right now, it's too soon to tell. But I do right. know science will be asking these very questions and have yeah. already, and we'll be diving into it in depth with all the great minds on the problem. And, you know, we knew and we know what the condition of the oceanic environment was. Um we pretty much know what the atmospheric environment was like around Otis. That was no mystery. So then what else was it? were we missing in the interior right. of the storm? Something right. in the inside, I think, was what let it go. And that was unique to the storm. Every storm is unique. We say that all the time. That's Every right. single storm is unique. Um, when we look at the, the, the conditions surrounding it, though, one thing that a lot of us keep pointing to now is that, well, it went over a batch of really warm water and it not just warm on top, but really deep oceanic heat content. The water temperatures, you're right, uh, at the surface were well above average. Um, yeah. This is a, a warm spot, even relative to what's 
typically expected this time of year. But the depth of that warm water was very significant. And it's called oceanic heat content. It's essentially a very good measure of the fuel that the tropical cyclone can access oceanically. So it was able to grab a hold of that. This localized pool of incredibly volatile um, ingredients from the ocean, this thing went right over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and clearly the atmosphere said, you know what? You can use whatever you can for that ocean. I'm going to open up that window for you. And it yeah. did. So you have to look at it from a sort of a combined coupled sense. It's not one thing. It's not one thing. It can't be because we've seen many storms go over deep ocean heat content. Right. And they don't all rapidly intensify. And they don't all. That's yeah. exactly right. So this was the, you know, the atmosphere and ocean conspired perfectly mm-hmm. in order to allow it to happen. So it almost maximized what it could. You know, there's these theoretical uh, numbers that you can that can be derived from the ocean and the atmosphere about how intense tropical cyclones can get. Mm-hmm. They're never, of course, reached because there's a lot of uh, assumptions that go into it. But it combines both the warmth and the depth of the warm water in the ocean and a measure of the stability in the atmosphere above. And when they work together, you can get outcomes like this. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we saw. Yeah. Well, let's actually talk about that because something else that, you know, if you, what are people talking about in the aftermath of this in terms of the forensics of the meteorology, mm-hmm. the jet stream. And there's been um, talk of, well, there was maybe this stronger area loft of some stronger jet stream winds that helped ventilate. Um, but when you look at a map, and I'll pull it up for people who are watching and streaming, um, when you look at a map, it's not close. <laughs> it's not close to the hurricane. And that's an interesting point because, you know, for for decades and even longer, people have been wondering the interaction of uh, mid-latitude uh, upper troughs and tropical cyclones. Is it good or is it bad? And, you know, in some ways it's really bad. In other ways, there's actually some benefit that a tropical cyclone can extract from the nearby presence of an upper trough like this one. You can't get too close because if you get too right. close... Wind shear, dry air, other uh, you know things that are harmful to the production of uh, tropical development become really involved, and mm-hmm. that's not good. But there is an optimal place for them to be, and it's not so much that it, you know, the nearby trough brings um, you know its its ascent with it and moistens the atmosphere and does other. I think more importantly than anything else, as you mentioned, it allows it to ventilate. It's mm-hmm. high altitude outflow, very far away. A hurricane needs to do that to survive and to grow and get stronger. It's got to deposit that outflow, the mass at high altitudes near the tropopause at great distances, or else it's going to fall back on itself. So imagine like the in, up, and out sort of you breathe in. If you can't exhale, you're going to suffocate. Mm-hmm. Hurricanes need to exhale. And if they can do that really effectively, then they're going to be able to tap the ocean and the fuel underneath it and allow that fire to burgeon. Right? It's like a flame, right? Yeah. It blows up like that. And if you can get that, you know, ventilation going, you can feed that fire and allow it to grow even more very quickly. The series of events lining up doesn't happen very often. No. Nope. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about um, the role of the size of Otis and mm. just the fact that we're in El Nino right now. So quick break. 
We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel. Got Dr. Greg Postel here, a hurricane specialist from the Weather Channel. Uh, We're doing a deep dive on Hurricane Otis. You know, it's still pretty fresh. It was just two days ago that it ramped up to Cat 5 within, Mm -hmm. you know, less less than 24 hours, a little bit more than 12 hours, and made landfall in Acapulco. And we're talking through what could have led to not just the rapid intensification, but the rapid intensification with very little warning, with no warning. I'll just say that. There was, you know, n- not a lot of signs. Of Imagine it. being in Acapulco, um, living there, visiting there, and, you know, that morning thinking you might get some rain and some wind, but nothing particularly uh, that you can't manage. And thinking that maybe there'll be a tropical storm making landfall mm-hmm. somewhere, you know, maybe 50 miles away that morning. And then turning out from any source of information coming your way. Yeah, certainly as a, as a tourist, you would. Why would you? Why? Yeah. I mean, if, if I were there and I saw that, I would, that morning, I would think, okay, well, I know what's going to happen, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll go on with the rest of my plans. And then it comes in. And then by that time, it's too late to enact your you know, mm-hmm. preparations. Yeah. You know what? That's because, for, because forecasts are usually that good. That, that right, we're suckered into feeling good yeah. about those forecasts 24 hours in advance, and this is a reminder that maybe some cases we're just not there yet. Yeah, no, I'm. This is this is a tough one. You know, certainly most difficult for the people of Acapulco who are dealing with the aftermath of this, and you know, meteorologists are taking this one hard. I think because there just wasn't the opportunity to provide communication on it very far in advance. We talked about before you do that. Yeah. I say I feel really bad for a lot of the forecasters who's you know careers are built on doing exactly this, warning people and preparing yeah. people. We did the best we could. The Hurricane Center did the best they mm-hmm. could with all the available data at hand. Right. And we're on top of it as quickly as they could be. And it's really, you know, I feel really a lot for yeah. those forecasters yeah. who dedicate yeah. their lives to saving people in harm's way in this kind of case. And, you know, it just was just a worst case scenario that happened with the worst yeah. possible way the nightmare situation that you know the hurricane center talked about in their discussion and i think literally every other meteorologist out there ha- has mentioned at some point in mm-hmm. in this discussion they, after the fact they did the best job they could yeah. under this yeah. you know worst case scenario uh it's worst case scenario the storm that rapidly intensifies without any real signs of it coming and hits a populated area it hits. That's right. I mean, you couldn't think of a, a worse concoction of events, yeah. right? You have this scenario, which imagine, you know, what about in the Gulf, Mexico on the other mm-hmm. side, right? We could see something like this in Tampa. We could see something like this in Houston mm-hmm. or New Orleans, right? Um, we haven't yet seen yeah. this kind of perfect storm, but there's no reason to think it couldn't happen or won't in the future. So let's look, uh, talk about the size of Otis mm-hmm. and maybe could that be a factor in allowing this to happen? So we, we talked about the ocean heat content. We talked about perhaps some ventilation from jet stream mm-hmm. far away, but perhaps yeah. a link to that. Um, let's talk about the just the, the very fact that it was small. Yeah. And this is an, this is a, an interesting point. Um, and I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but, you know, <laughs> we were looking at the, the size of the storms and the scale of the storminess in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. The smaller it is, I feel like there the more upside there is, or certainly the more potential there is for rapid intensification. The larger storms, which are spread out, um, have lots of... Um, 
things that could get in their way. Mm-hmm. You know, when a storm is bigger, it can start to attract um, non-tropical air and bring it into the interior, which would slow down its progress. Mm-hmm. The, you know, and when things are all happening in a very small area like this, if you constrain the heating, uh, the latent heating with the convection in the middle of the storm, the thunderstorm activity, then you can lower the pressures much more effectively than if you would if the heat were spread out over a larger area. Your pressures will come down. You're more likely to have the the convection to organize in a way that would clear out an eye mm-hmm. and then drop the pressures rapidly from there. So I think you're onto something that the scale of the initial disturbance matters a lot. And how that plays into intensification, it seems like that the smaller storms might have a better shot at... Um, you know, insulating themselves from any other environment, right? Any other um, predator, so to speak, in terms of, of the environment. Yeah. Uh, do you think the fact that we are in an El Nino is a factor here? Well, with the SSTs warmer than average in the East Pacific during El Nino, I couldn't imagine it's not a role. Yeah. You know exactly how much I don't know, but I mean this this is one of those situations where. Going into the season, with water temperatures typically warmer than average in the East Pacific and some of the upper atmospheric, um, you know, favored um, dynamics, dynamics, I guess. Yeah. This is characteristic of an El Nino season where you can get a lot of these types of systems and less so over the Atlantic, or at least ones that behave differently over the Atlantic. These are the the types of hurricanes that make us look at every other hurricane differently. I think after Michael, Mm -hmm. remember in the Gulf of Mexico back in, was it 2018, 2018? um, And that went through rapid intensification. And it surpassed well beyond what the models have said, although the models were still pointing towards intensification, maybe a major, right? But it went to Cat 5. Um, And I think that made forecasters really take a harder look at the importance of when when a storm, when a hurricane tracks over really deep ocean heat content, if everything else is perfect, you're going to get rapid intensification. You know, it, it reminds me of, and we talked about this um, a little bit off camera earlier yesterday, I think, or the day before, uh, it reminds me of Opal, Hurricane Opal back mm-hmm. in the mid-90s, 1995. And I, I, was, I chased that storm. Um, I drove all the way from Wisconsin to the Gulf Coast. And I almost turned around halfway because at that time, Opal was, I think, coming out of the Caribbean, moving northward. It was going to cross the Gulf of Mexico, and it was struggling. Mm-hmm. And then in a matter of just a few hours, it went over uh, one of those high heat content, mm-hmm. the ocean eddies, uh, those warm core eddies, and it exploded and went to a high-end Cat 4, I think. I don't even I think it was 150 miles per hour or something like that, but very quickly, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then weakened you know, when it finally made a close encounter with the coastline. But we've seen hurricanes do this before a lot mm-hmm. you know and they go over these eddies mm-hmm. and these mm-hmm. pockets of very warm uh water and high heat content that they sometimes just absolutely explode yeah the the question then i think is well why doesn't every storm that go over mm-hmm. one of these hot pockets explode mm-hmm. in intensity because because they don't there's many that don't you said it earlier i mean the, they you need that cooperation with the atmosphere and if you don't have it you're not going to be able to maximize what the ocean is providing yeah. you know if you have 
you know, even a little wind shear, yes, sometimes that can be good, but sometimes sneaky pockets of dry air find their way into interiors more often than not, especially on the Atlantic side. We see that all the time. Dry air is coming in from this direction. It's coming in from this direction. It's going to, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden interfere yeah. with the circulation. And that happens a lot. And There's shear, there's dry air. There's yeah. The Atlantic yeah. generally is a very difficult place yeah. to support, uh, a, you know, a, a well, a mature hurricane for very long right it's not like the western pacific it's not at all like the western or even like eastern pacific but even the eastern pacific is not usually like this the atlantic is a is a is a rough place if you're if you're a burgeoning tropical cyclone and you want to become this (laughs) long-lived event uh good luck i mean yes we've seen some of those last a long time but not at a high intensity they always tend to eventually run into problems especially as they gain latitude and start moving northward so it's almost like most of the time we're going to have warm water somewhere in its path, mm-hmm. along its path. I mean, there's enough pockets of this out there in the Western. Like when you're talking about the Atlantic, you've got the Western Caribbean, you've got the Gulf of Mexico, there's spots. Um, there are these pockets in the Eastern Pacific. So really need to look at all the other features to see what's lining up because it's these, these subtle things. You mentioned the the humid atmosphere yeah. over top of Otis. That's it again, there. very subtle. Yeah. But it was small. All, it was all there. And then you had, again, the the sort of close proximity of that upper trough. And, you know, that I remember back when I was in graduate school, thousand years ago, um, I had a colleague working on um, the role of these upper troughs, but on into as they penetrated into the ITCZ over the Pacific, how that influence um, allowed thunderstorm activity to flourish. Mm -hmm. You had, you know, one of these upper troughs coming nearby. Mm-hmm. And what it did was, is it changed what's called the inertial stability in the outflow layer. So in other words, uh, these areas in the ITCZ were able to uh, like vent their outflow. They were able to, m- the high altitude uh, air atop these convective plumes or these convective uh, regions were able to send the uh, mass at a great distance. And I know this is kind of shop talk, but it's really important. That's what the Weather Geeks podcast is for. That's what it's for. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really it's really important to, to know how the hurricane or whatever, whatever the case would be, like when I was describing the plumes of thunderstorms in the ITC, it's very important that they're able to exhale. And when you reduce the inertial stability, uh, you can exhale farther. Uh, it's a measure of resistance to lateral movement, essentially. And if you can you know, throw stuff far away and, and exhale very far, then you can take a deep breath. That's what creates your your thunderstorms and all the latent heating in the interior of these engines. This is smart stuff. We're going to take another quick break, Greg, and then we'll come back and talk about the future forecasting this kind of event. We are back now on the Weather Geeks podcast and here with Dr. Greg Postel, a meteorologist, Jen Carfagno, talking about Hurricane Otis and the rapid intensification and the truly storm that became a Cat 5 with very little warning. Uh, We've stepped through, you know, after the fact now, we can look at and see, well, what could have possibly led to this? But let's talk about the future of predicting rapid intensification. There's lots of studies. I feel like every week we're learning of a new study. There was a recent one a few weeks ago that showed in the Atlantic Basin that in the past 20 years, compared to the 20 years prior to that, so compared to the 80s to the 2000s, there has been a basin-wide increase 
by 36% in storms that have rapidly intensified. So we're, we're able to see it happening. It's all about forecasting when it's happening. It's a new world, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's changing with the climate. Our, the odds of RI now, maybe not everywhere. Yeah. But you were saying certain some of the oceanic basins. More than others. The trends are there. So are our weather models suited for that? Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a big question. I'm not expecting a, an answer, but we need to have a discussion about it. Uh, I imagine that, you know, we're we're looking at that. Yeah. You know, we're trying to understand, you know, the, the delicate coupling between mm-hmm. the transfer of heat from the ocean to the mm-hmm. atmosphere and the time scale at which it happens and how that then relates to the development and the production of, you know, deep convection. It's, you know... That that interface between the ocean and the atmosphere, you know, so much happens in such a small depth, mm-hmm. and yet it can have such incredible influence on what ultimately takes place. Mm-hmm. You know, so little things like that. This is again the modeling getting way out of here on way out of my depth, but I I imagine that the great modelers in the tropical world are, you know, constantly evolving in their understanding of the the ways to parameterize this this transfer of heat and other things to better accurately simulate what yeah. really happens. Because again, models are just, you know, our best estimates of right. what's really going right. on. Right. And this is what is, we just think, you know? This is why the human forecaster is there to yeah. look beyond. They're not perfect yeah. and they're never going to be perfect for lots of reasons. But, you know, we're just trying to make them better. Yeah. And, you know, the more you understand of what is happening, the better you can simulate it. Yeah. Speaking of just making the models better, we did see that first and foremost with Otis when the hurricane hunters flew in and got specific ground truth data that it was a Cat 3 Mm -hmm. at a time when just observing it from space from a satellite perspective might have thought a little bit less. Mm -hmm. So that data goes into the hurricane forecast models and is able to help give at least a little more, there was a better projection of what was going to happen. The, the better you understand what you have at, at hand yeah. in front of you, the more likely you're going to have a better forecast. Mm-hmm. It's not always the case, but that's certainly yeah. one of the things that you want. You want the most accurate initial conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was that was a few hours before landfall. Yeah. It, it was all the timing and proximity to land, again, which makes this a nightmare scenario that it was rapidly intensifying close to landfall of a populated place. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to happen. As I said earlier, it's there are going to be other places mm-hmm. um, that are also highly populated along the shores of the Gulf mm-hmm. or the shores of the nearby Atlantic that are going to see something like this. It's only a matter of time, you know, that. Yeah. So we need to maybe figure out how to prepare quickly mm-hmm. and react quickly because we are now in an era of things happening quickly, like RI. Mm-hmm. So we need to maybe... I don't know, PQ, prepare quickly yeah, <laughs> for an RI yeah, event. I think you're right. I think you're right, Greg Quist. I think that's a, a, actually a good place to wrap it up. It's well said that we are in a changing environment. We're seeing it's it a- every year. And uh, you need to be ready for maybe what we haven't seen before. The fingerprints of climate change are all over this, you know, and they're all over events like this. And it just is a reminder that, you know, you can't, it's almost impossible to attribute one particular event to that, but it's all happening in the environment mm-hmm. that is giving it more opportunity and a greater likelihood of happening. And this is the new new future, you know? Yeah. 
Great post, Al. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jen. Yeah, Thank you for inviting me. This was a good Weather Geeks podcast. Hopefully um, we'll do more, maybe on winter stuff. And there'll, be, there'll be plenty. Hopefully no more hurricanes of the season, though we know uh, this. it's not even November yet. And we know it's not November. the Atlantic season runs through the end of November. <laughs> it does. And, and you know what? You can get a hurricane any time of year. You can. It, the hurricane <laughs> season ends technically at the end of November. But as you know, I mean, that's just because statistically that's where we've seen it really drop off, but it doesn't mean it can't happen after that. Exactly. All right. Scary thoughts for Halloween, huh? We'll, we will be watching. Thank <laughs> right. you all for listening yes. to Bye. this to this Weather Geeks podcast.